0: turn in the scriptures to the book of Proverbs. Today is the first Sunday of summer, and we're studying the climactic and warm invitation of Proverbs chapter 9. Throughout the spring, we have studied through this magnificent nine-chapter introduction to Proverbs. Proverbs. The nine chapters introduce the entire book of Proverbs, and today we finish up that introduction. The book of Proverbs was composed by Israel's King Solomon almost 3,000 years ago. Solomon was son of David. He was one of the ancestors of Jesus. David, of course, was the king that was promised by God that one of his descendants would rule forever. He would rule as king of kings on this planet for eternity. And that king who had been promised in David's line is Jesus, the king who was crucified bearing our punishment, bearing the punishment that all of us rebels deserve. And he died and then rose again to prove that he could completely rid creation of sin and death. The sin and death that now blanket creation. Jesus is God's chosen king. He proved it. And everyone who follows Jesus will be forgiven of sin, will be raised from the dead, and will eventually inherit the kingdom. Solomon is in that kingly line And he is writing a book to his sons, his descendants, Israel's political class, and the next generation of Israel's leaders. And he's wanting them to get wisdom. Every week in this study, I've tried to just give a very simple definition of wisdom. Wisdom refers to a skill. It's not fundamentally what you know. It is a skill in living. It's a relational skill of pleasing God in every facet of life. And right now, before we read Proverbs chapter 9, I want to do a quick summary of what we've studied in the book to this point. So if you're at Proverbs 9, turn a few pages back to Proverbs 1, and you'll see that in verse 1, Solomon introduced himself, and then in verse 2, he said, Here's my goal, that you would know wisdom. I want you to figure out what it means to live wisely. He says in verse 4 that his whole goal is that those who don't have wisdom would get it. And in verse 5, that those who've started down the path would keep going, that they'd increase in learning. Verse 5. And then he starts in verse 7 with his thesis statement, here's where wisdom begins. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Wisdom begins with fearing the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It means that God is the most important reality in your life. It means that God matters to you. It means that what God says to you matters more to you than what any other voice is speaking to you. What God says matters. It means that what God thinks of you matters more to you than what anyone else might think of you. God matters to you. His existence matters to you. A relationship with Him has changed your life. It shapes your life. That's the fear of the Lord. And Solomon finished chapter 1 with the most basic the most basic lessons for getting wisdom in life. He first says, if you're going to get wisdom, you're going to have to refuse bad friends who encourage you to disobey God. You're going to have to say no to bad peer pressure. And instead, you're going to have to repent or turn or change your course of direction whenever God corrects you. So the the review of chapter one is do I respect the Lord? Do I reject friendships with people who encourage me to disobey God? Do I repent when God corrects me? Do these sorts of things characterize my life? If you care more about fitting in with God-belittling people, with people for whom, you know, God doesn't really make a difference in their lives. If you care more about fitting in with them than pleasing the God who made you, you'll never get wisdom. If you... No, I know how God wants me to live. I always sense it in my conscience. But you just turn off the conscience. You flip the switch and you say, I know the way God wants me to live, but, but it doesn't really matter whether I live that way or not. If what God says actually makes no difference to you, you'll never get wisdom. The way Solomon describes these life choices is significant. If you look at Proverbs one twenty, he describes the invitation of a, of a life in which God matters, he describes it as a personified woman. A graceful and elegant woman who's crying out to all of his sons, embrace me. Live in a relationship with me. We'll come back to that. Proverbs 2 picks up right where Proverbs 1 left off. Proverbs 1 left off saying, whenever God corrects you, receive it. That's right where Proverbs 2.1 picks up. But then he describes a progression from simply receiving correction that's given to hungering for wisdom and then crying for it verse 3 of chapter 2 and then hunting for it Proverbs 2:4. Look at Proverbs 2:4. He says you'll learn to live in a way that pleases God if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure. He's describing treasure hunters. What he's describing here is a life-dominating pursuit. Is that how you'd describe your desire for the correction of God's Word? If hungering for God's correction doesn't dominate your life, you'll never get wisdom. And, if you look at chapter 2, verse 12 and following, you'll always be susceptible to the temptations of evil friends. And verse 16 is where he starts saying, if you don't get wisdom, you'll never be protected from evil women. And that's the first of five times in these first nine chapters that Solomon warns his son about the destructive seduction of immoral women. Interestingly, I didn't point this out weeks ago when we were studying Proverbs 2, but if you look at verse 22, Solomon warns his sons that disobedience will result in God uprooting them from the land. You see that in verse 22? God's going to uproot you from the land. The imagery is like weeds that get pulled from a garden. That's exactly what happened to Solomon's sons just a few generations later. The first 12 verses then of Proverbs 3 are six pairs each verse verse one and verse two is a command and a promise and then verse three and four same thing pairs a command and a promise a command and a promise you have six pairs and all of them are stressing the importance of living life with God at the center does how I work that's addressed in these verses does how I make decisions does how I handle money does how I react to trials show that God is central in my life do I live life with God at the center? It's interesting that, Prover- that Proverbs 3 goes on to stress that if you get wisdom, your, your life will be blessed. It's in that central section of Proverbs 3. Do you see that in verse 13? The verse begins with the word blessed. And this little poem in the center of the chapter in verse 18 ends with the word blessed. It'll be like tree of life kinds of blessings according to Verse 18. And I pointed out, and I've tried to point this out repeatedly, that when Solomon is describing the blessed life that comes to those who get wisdom, he's not merely thinking of temporary blessings, like you're going to live a little longer, you're going to live a little happier, you're going to live a little wealthier. He's not thinking of mere temporary blessings. All of those things are true, and sociologists have known it for decades. But Solomon has in mind a tree of life kind of existence. Where do we know about the tree of life? It's Genesis 1 and 2. It's a Garden of Eden kind of existence. You're going to be blessed with an existence of life outside the curse. This whole world is cursed with sin that cuts through every one of our hearts and death that breaks off every relationship we know. And Solomon says, do you want blessing? Do you want tree of life kinds of blessings in your life? Then get wisdom. People are created for life. Eternal life. We're created to know God. We're created to love Him and love others. Do you want life? Eternal life on a curse-free planet with a sin-free population under the perfect rule of God's chosen King? Do you want blessing? Get wisdom, Solomon says. Get wisdom. Of course, we know from the New Testament, as the scriptures unfold, that the only way to be reconciled to God and forgiven of all of our sin, the only way to enter the kingdom is through faith in the serpent-crushing king and faith in Jesus. This is the way we enter. So in these first few chapters, Solomon says, get wisdom. Get wisdom. And then in the next few chapters, he's going to stress the keeping of wisdom Do I keep wisdom? Will I keep the wisdom I've gotten? For example, in chapter 4, he basically says, do I keep on obeying God's word? Do I keep on resisting temptation? Do I keep on guarding my heart from its natural waywardness? Do I keep on this path? Conversion is not a been there, done that kind of a thing. It's not a once and done, oh yeah, I did that when I was a little kid. If you've been converted, you have a heartbeat. And your heartbeat is continually saying, trust Jesus, turn away from sin. Keep following Jesus, keep turning away from sin. It's an ongoing thing. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a living principle. It's the Spirit at work in you. It's not a once and done thing. Solomon is then in chapters 5, 6, and 7 going to repeatedly warn his son about sexual immorality. Sex outside of God's design of marriage. Now, we learn from these chapters and especially how the adulteress in these chapters is contrasted with this personification of wisdom as a beautiful, elegant lady. We learn that There is a deep connection in this world that God created between an individual's sexuality and that person's devotion to God. This is very, very basic. To live immorally will drive you from God. And to live for God will bring your sexual desires and your sexual behavior under the control of God. There is no other option. God, in the way he's created the world, has deeply intertwined our sexuality, our sexual desires and our behaviors with what it means to be devoted to him. In chapter 5, Pastor Greg warned about the ruinous consequences of adultery. The ruinous consequences. In chapter 6, I warned about adultery's most devastating consequence. It is an abomination to God. It is revolting to Him. It is one of the things that God hates. And in teaching chapter 7, Lee stressed the seductive power of adultery that everyone must keep on resisting. If you are going to keep on the path of wisdom, you are going to say no to sexual temptation thousands and thousands and thousands of times it's part of what it means to live wisely to live devotedly to god now in proverbs 8 it's the chapter we studied most recently just 2 weeks ago we saw wisdom's sales pitch again the most prolonged personification throughout the whole chapter solomon pictures wisdom, the way of living life in relation to God, in submission to God. He pictures wisdom as a woman who's inviting men to choose her way of life. And she promises that those who follow her will be blessed with life, while those who reject her will be judged with death. When I taught that passage, Proverbs 8, I pointed out that wisdom foreshadows Jesus who promised life to all who would personally follow him. And he promised death and hell to all those who refused to follow him. In fact, Jesus very bluntly said, wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many are traveling that road. I also pointed out that the whole reason Solomon personified wisdom as a woman was to teach his sons that commitment to God is like the commitment of marriage. It is both decisive in its beginning and it is ongoing in its duration. You commit to God like you would commit to a woman in marriage. That's what he's teaching his sons. So I just summarize the, the whole introduction to this point. Saying we've learned that a relationship with God is best pictured by marriage. Like Solomon's son's, Embracing, a term that's used frequently throughout these chapters, embracing wisdom. Just like in marriage, this is a relationship that is life-dominating. It's all-encompassing. When I get married to Hannah, we start scheduling together. We start making decisions together. We start spending money together. Our whole lives over the years become completely intertwined. It is an all-encompassing sort of relationship. Just like marriage affects your schedule and your priorities and your decisions and your finances, so does a relationship with God completely. Just like marriage, this relationship with God is something that's entered into decisively, and yet it's not a once-and-done thing. It involves daily recommitment and upkeep constant upkeep strengthening of your relationship even as you keep fighting regular temptation and you keep saying no to the seductive voices that are trying to get you to disregard God and do what feels good in the moment this is what a relationship with God looks like Proverbs 1 through 9 is picturing it so powerfully so vividly now we come to the grand conclusion Proverbs chapter 9. This is the conclusion of the introduction. Ironic. Proverbs 9, verse 1. Wisdom has builded her house. She's hewn her seven pillars. She's slaughtered her beasts and mixed her wine. She's set her table. She's sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever's simple... Turn here to him who lacks sense. She says, come, eat of my bread. Drink the wine that I've mixed. Leave your simple ways and live. Walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Don't reprove a scoffer. Or he'll hate you. Reprove a wise man, he'll love you. Give instruction to a wise man, he'll be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, he'll increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you're wise... You're wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. It's basically forcing personal, individual decision. Here's the conclusion. Verse 13. The woman folly, she's loud. She's seductive. She knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to all those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks scent, she says, Stolen water is sweet, bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he doesn't know that the dead are there, and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol or the grave. Hmm. I'd state the main idea of this chapter like this. To live wisely, you must decisively reject the inferior pleasures of a life of disobedience and choose the superior pleasures of a life of ongoing humble submission to God. If you're going to live wisely, you're going to need to decisively reject the inferior pleasures of a life of disobedience and choose the superior pleasures of a life of humble and ongoing submission to God. It's a profound chapter. Do you see how the chapter begins with almost like restaurant billboards? When Greg taught this chapter to the teens a few months back, he started with a description of just how difficult it can be for a couple or a family to decide where they want to go out to eat you decide to go to lunch today and stay just within a mile or two wild burrito mary's don tequilas joey's cornerstone maybe there's another favorite you're going for wendy's (laughs) arby's the list could go on that one choice could cause tension in your marriage If I would start the application of Proverbs chapter 9, I'd say, if you're going to be wise, you must carefully compare the pleasures offered in two very contrasting, very differing ways of life. If you're going to be wise, you have to compare the pleasures offered in two very different ways of life. Those two ways are pictured as different restaurants. The way I title the message is choose to dine at Wisdom's Steakhouse. Because that's the billboard for the first restaurant in verses 1 to 6. Wisdom's Steakhouse. The restaurant owner desperately wants every person to enjoy the meal that she has to offer. Of course, enjoying the meal, I'm going to make all of you hungry and you're going to be like, why don't you finish quick? The message has, has really nothing to do with food. The restaurant pictures the joys of a right relationship with God. If you are right with God forever through Jesus, the steak and the wine picture the pleasures that you're going to enjoy. To enjoy this meal, however, you have to say no to the restaurant on the other side of the street. The billboard for that second restaurant is verses 13 to 18. That's where the immoral woman is saying to all the men, come, eat here at my restaurant. If you want to come up with a creative title for her restaurant, you might call it Deviant's Diner. Her seduction is verbalized in verse 17. Stolen water and secret bread. Do things that no one else needs to know about. In effect, she's saying, come, enjoy living the way that God forbids. The most fun in life is going to be found in deviance, rebellion. Don't follow God. Do what you want. That's where true joy is going to be found. That's where your hunger is going to be satisfied. It's the powerful imagery of Proverbs chapter 9. The menu at Wisdom's Steakhouse is living for God. And the menu in the, in the, in the diner, deviance diner, live rebelliously. Live as your own authority. Both invitations offer a meal. They offer a satisfaction of hunger. They offer pleasure. It's really interesting to me, though, that the woman folly in verse 17 only offers water and bread, while the meal that Lady Wisdom offers includes steak and wine. Love that. In this picture of hunger satisfying food and drink, God is teaching us that living for him involves superior pleasure than living as your own authority and isn't that exactly opposite the lie that every message in this world is sounding living for god he's going to ruin your life living for god is miserable living for god i mean that means that your life is going to be boring and you're always going to be having someone tell you what to do if that's what you're believing you're believing a lie You have bought into the lie of inferior pleasure. It's what Moses said no to according to Hebrews 11. The pleasures of sin for a season. There'll be a little pleasure for a short time. While God is offering you superior, long-term, eternal pleasure. I have to point out here what Solomon is teaching. He's modeling it here. And it's something that he's modeling through these nine chapters that I haven't addressed in this kind of specificity to this point. Solomon models here the the giving of a moral education. He takes the time to explain to his kids right and wrong. And he goes farther. He explains to them what's beautiful about what's right. And what's tempting about what's wrong. And he takes time to explain to them, no one else can make the choice for you. He understands that his children are going to have to make an independent choice. And so he puts up two options before them, not just one. Every one of us in this room comes into the world needing a moral education being taught right from wrong, being taught why right is right and why wrong is so tempting and being challenged. There's coming a day when you're going to have to make choices for yourself. We all need a moral education and we all need to grow into moral educators. Moral educator is just another word for a Christian disciple maker. Or we might say, a parent, right? Every Christian is called to be a disciple-maker. It means we're going to have to do what, what Solomon's doing in these chapters. Parents in particular must do what Solomon is doing in these chapters. As our children get older, we must give them a moral education. It is not enough merely to shield them from bad influence, As if looking at a movie and saying it's got this bad, this bad, this bad, this bad, we never watch it, is our only mode of operation when it comes to training our children. Keep bad away, keep bad away, keep bad away. There comes a point where you need to tell your children, the world out there is bad. This is what bad looks like. It's going to be tempting to you. This is what makes it bad. This is what makes choosing right so much better. We need to have that kind of moral education about our parenting. In fact, if you think, oh boy, I just need to keep my kids, shield my kids from all the evil that's out there, your whole mindset is going to be deficient because my kids need to know that evil is already inside our home. It's evil inside their there, there's evil inside their dad. There's evil inside them. We can't keep it out. It's in us. And we need to teach them how to face evil. Proverbs models that there must come a time when we educate our children about what's evil and when we explain that's wrong, here's why it's wrong, here's why it's so tempting, you're going to have to make the choice someday that I can't make for you. You say, how do I give my kids this moral education? The best thing that you can do is read the Bible with them and explain it, and let them ask questions. I remember what it was like to read through Genesis with my two oldest girls before they were 10. Reading through Genesis alone forced us to have family discussions about disobedience, temptation, murder, polygamy, drunkenness, homosexuality, incest, jealousy, You want to talk about giving your kids a framework for moral education? Bringing up topics of conversation that you need to discuss with them. Just read the Bible. It's a powerful textbook. It should be our textbook for moral education. We should read it in a way that leads to regular and rich conversation about life. I can also recommend some side supports. The book that we have featured today, you see it on the front of your program, is this one, Julie Lowe's Safeguards. She's a solid biblical counselor. Greg actually just got to spend some time with her just a few weeks back. The subtitle of the book is Shielding Our Homes and Equipping Our Kids. Paul Tripp writes the introduction, very powerful. He says, I think this is a very vivid way of stating what's What's going on in the role of parent? He says the best word for the role of parent is ambassador. An ambassador represents the one who sent him or her. Parenting is not first about what we want for our children or what we want from our children, but what God has for them and what God requires from them. In everything you do as a parent, in all the little moments as a parent, you're an ambassador. You're representing the one who sent you. It's a helpful perspective. Julie goes on in the first chapter to explain why she titled the book Safeguards. She says, Safeguards means working to establish a home and a worldview that protects your children. Parents are the first line of defense. We're tasked with care, protection, and the discipling of our children. We must discern immediate and future danger and have a plan for how to combat it. We are the primary educators of our children. Our job is to give them knowledge and skills to navigate the world around them. We must, as our children get older, expose them to what is wrong, why it is wrong, why it is so tempting, and that they're going to have to make the choice on their own to choose what is right. Parents, do you set two restaurant options out in front of your children? Do you explain to them that both restaurants promise a satisfying meal? Do you help your children to understand that disobedience does bring pleasure that's temporary? Are you a winsome model before your children? That there are superior pleasures that living for God offers. That disobeying is like bread and water, but living for God, it's like steak and wine. Does your testimony show that to your kids? I focused very heavily in this first point on being a moral educator, but I want to just go back to the most basic question and say Do you realize that every human needs a moral education? Do you see, do you personally see that there are only two ways of life? You're either going to live obediently under submission to the Lordship of Jesus or you're going to live however you want outside of the authority of God. Do you see that both promise pleasure? Do you see that one leads to life and the other leads to death? Do you see that you are actually choosing one right now? That's where Proverbs 9 finds all of us. I would urge you, the message of Proverbs 9 is not obey and hope that your good works are going to outweigh your bad. The message of Proverbs 9 is there is no human who can naturally earn a relationship with God. The message of Proverbs along with the message of the entire Old Testament is... We have something within us that is deeply wrong. We need to be forgiven, and there is a way of forgiveness. The way is Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to be reconciled to God the Father is through faith in Jesus, through life commitment to Jesus. We learn from the Proverbs that no one naturally obeys God's law, that life is found in the only in being united to the only man who ever lived with perfect wisdom and that is to Jesus second point if you're going to be wise you must choose ever increasing teachableness rather than ever increasing stubbornness toward God there's no third option between these two restaurant uh billboards is the street of life verses t- 7 to 12 are the central verses of proverbs chapter 9 and they lament scoffers and praise the righteous according to verses 7 and 8 scoffers are those who don't care about god they don't care about what he says They marginalize all those who live as if God matters. I'd guess that most of us can relate to both sides. It says, reprove a scoffer and you'll get injured. I would guess that most of us can relate to both sides. Have you ever tried to correct someone? And they say, who do you think you are? Mind your own business. Stop trying to rule my life. If you've corrected Someone and you gotten that response, you probably have corrected a scoffer. Let's flip it. Have you ever been corrected? And you said, get out of my face. I don't care. Stop trying to tell me what to do. If so, you've demonstrated that you're a scoffer, that you're not teachable. According to these verses a rejection of God's word grows like cancer. If it is not addressed with the treatment of humble repentance when you're corrected, it'll just increase all throughout life and you will grow harder and harder and harder. But contrasted with the scoffer are verses 8 and 9. It's the righteous who live with an ever-increasing habit of loving to learn. They love correction. Have you ever corrected someone and they replied, thank you, I really appreciate that you care enough about me to tell me something that really could have been hard for me to hear. Thank you. If so, you've probably talked to someone who's modeling wisdom. Have you ever replied like that? Now, of course, the wisdom that's in view is not teachableness generally, as if someone is correcting you regarding, like, how you're fixing a, 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 a car or how you're fixing a window or, or something like this. We're talking about correctableness when it comes to living for God, what it means to live for God. Do you love correction in that way? According to these central verses of Proverbs 9, you can either resist correction and be a scoffer, or you can be someone who loves correction and is always willing to grow from it. It's this life of ever-increasing hardness or this life of ever-increasing softness. I have a book stamp that you'll see in all of my books. It comes from How to Read a Book, which is a great classic book. Little statement in that book, that I hope continues to shape my life till I'm with the Lord. The mark of humility is teachability. Are you a teachable person? Do you want to be a teachable person? The more you you grow, do you want to be more and more teachable? Hannah and I say often, if God gives us life into our 60s, 70s, and 80s, we pray that we will age, not as know-it-alls, But as people who want to keep pursuing growth and learning, may we never ever stop growing. It's the two paths. Now we come to the very, very center of the chapter. Last point. We're concluding here. The very heart of the chapter sits verse 10. It's the bullseye of the chapter. It's the bullseye of the first nine chapters. It's a Beautiful repetition, but not an exact repetition of Proverbs one seven, where we were told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs nine ten says, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowing the Holy One is understanding." I said at the outset, the fear of the Lord means that God's existence is most important to you. You live in a way that shows God matters. His word matters. What he thinks of me matters. But notice this rhyming phrase, the second half of verse 10. Fearing the Lord means knowing the Holy One. Do you know the one true God who made the world? I didn't ask, do you know that he exists? Do you know certain facts about him? I didn't say, do you know about him? The question that Solomon is forcing us to ask in verse 10 is, do you know the Holy One? Do you personally know the Holy One? Do you have a relationship with Him? If not, then you need to be converted. You need to turn your life from being your own authority, and you need to submit your life to Jesus. The one who was crucified, bearing your punishment. The one who rose again, who can raise you again from the dead. You need to commit your life to Jesus. And this commitment is like a marriage commitment. It's not a, I did it that Sunday morning in the middle of June. I guess it sticks. No. It is a commitment that might begin today for you. But it should be ongoing. It should be something you keep recommitting yourself to and growing in like a good relationship. This is what Solomon is describing. If you have not come to know God, the Holy One, through committing your life to Jesus, I urge you to do that today. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And now I speak to Christians. You have given your life to Jesus. You have trusted Jesus as your only hope for being right with God. How's your personal relationship with God? Do you keep relating to God? Do you keep your relationship with God strong? Do you read His Word? Do you respond with prayer? Do you regularly thank Him for His gifts? Do you regularly worship Him? Do you regularly cry out to him in times of need? Do you love the Holy One? Is your relationship with the Holy One growing? From Proverbs 9, we learn that choosing to live for God is not a choice to give up pleasure. Those who follow Jesus... They don't have to check at the door, fun, enjoyment, and pleasure in life. No, not at all. If you choose to submit to Jesus, if you entrust your life to God's chosen king and make him your authority, you actually choose a life of eternal pleasure, a life of superior pleasure. And how could it not be? Knowing the Holy One The one who has no equal. We have such little, puny views of God. We think that if we commit our lives to the God who made us, He's going to ruin our lives. The God who made you. The one and only. How could... Knowing the Holy One ever be boring or miserable. Do you have such a low view of God? I love what Solomon's father sang. It shakes us. It wakes us up. David said, In God's presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Choose to dine at Wisdom's Steakhouse. Father, I pray that you would shape our lives with Proverbs 9. First and foremost, Lord, I pray that you would be exalted as the Holy One, the One whom we come and adore. May we pursue a deeper relationship with you all throughout life. Father, for Christians in this room, God, I pray that you would wake us up to our lazy habits of relating with you. For those who are strong in their relational habits, God, I pray that you would strengthen them, bless them, and keep them humble and teachable till the day they see you. Father, maybe there are children in here who think that obeying you is a life of misery. Oh God, I pray that you would pierce the darkness of those thoughts and open their eyes to the joy and the pleasure of living in right relationship with the God who made them, who gave them every capacity for pleasure that they, that they have. Oh God, I pray that you would shape our lives with this passage be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen.